Hey, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing P.G. Woodhouse's novel, Summer Lightning. Um, this is not the first time we have done P.G. Woodhouse on this show, but it's the first time in a long time. And it's the first time this year, because this is the first book of 2024. Um, this is our first time recording in 2024. Happy New Year, yeah, guys. That's right. Yeah. Happy New Year. We we It's actually, although people have recently heard an episode with us on it it's been longer than that since we actually recorded it because has. we got we did get ahead a little bit uh so that i earned a little vacation vacate especially yeah. for you sean you weren't on the q a for the for things fall apart. so it's been I, a couple of weeks for the three of us i just got home this morning well actually i got home an hour ago <laughs> we had many adventures and misadventures over yeah this. you had some misadventures didn't you yeah I did, so but, did you, but you didn't get sick no you encountered sick people along the way. Some My of them grace. who were going to put you up subsequently could not put you up because they were struck down. Yeah, we dodged a lot of sick people, your parents included. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then we finally did end up with sick friends in Richmond, but they were already on the mend. And, uh, you know, by the second day of our visit, they were feeling great and we had a good time. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, I think this is this is one of those books that I think can teach you a lot about what to happen when misadventures occur. Uh, what's, right. How to respond to misadventure is what I mean to say there. Um, <laughs> also has a lot to say about people who say things the wrong way, uh, like I just did. Heidi, you were in another country. You I was have, in Mexico. It appears, it, we had a it great appears vacation. You made you, it home. You didn't get kidnapped. Home. home. Yeah. yeah, I did, though. I did have an adversity there, and I oh. felt like I wanted to fit in with you guys, so... I got oh, yeah. <laughs> a pretty bad case of Montezuma's revenge. Ooh, no. I was bedridden for a day and a half. Did uh, you but you but you survived? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I gotta know what we're dealing with here. You're not supposed to drink anything but cocktails, I think, I, when you're at the resort. I did it. I think it must have I mean, maybe it was the ice. I don't know. Mm, the ice, yeah. But oh, I did go swimming yeah. in a cenote, you know, because we're on the Riviera Maya where they have these oh, underground yeah. caves, freshwater caves. They're amazing. There's stalactites. Oh, that's where you got all, That's where you got it. We yeah, stala- yeah this, don't ingest yeah. the stalactite. Well, mm-hmm. No, it isn't like I, I wasn't, but I did <laughs> Sounds swim like you did. In, in one of them. And that might have been it. But they say they're supposed to be like super healthy and the water's really clean. But well, I did have a lot of cocktails with ice in them because I was trying to. <laughs> figure out what it was like to be in a PG Woodhouse not so it was like research <laughs> right right so did anyone else get get, no, get it was re- revenged me. upon it oh, was okay. just me so mm-hmm. yeah I missed out on the jet skiing so that was oh, that oh, okay so it's starting to become clear to me that you faked your day of <laughs> bedriddenness Percy <laughs> Well, we are here to discuss um, most of the rest of Summer Lightning. I'm just going to tell people the situation here. We're not going to discuss the end because, well, frankly, Heidi and I didn't finish. We just had so much. Heidi was vacating um, and she had Montezuma's Revenge. And so therefore, she couldn't couldn't finish the reading. No, we both. I could not do it. This is this is one of those books that. it reads quick. It's easy, but also it's got a lot of pages. And uh, we just I, put I, it off to the last minute. That's the yeah, only thing yeah, that happened. Yeah, 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 Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
I don't know which one is I'm better. I'm in the royal we. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so we're going to discuss just two about, we're going to say the last few chapters basically for the final episode. So we'll talk about the ending when we do the Q&A episode. And it occurred to me that based on some feedback I was getting from listeners, maybe we should have done another episode anyway. So then this gives people a chance to catch up. So we'll do through chapter base roughly 14 yeah, here. There, there were a lot of people who had back-ordered books or books that didn't come into their library. So maybe this is a godsend to some of them. That's true. In fact, this book was back-ordered. Then all the inventory that came in was gone, and now it's back-ordered again. Oh, man. So good job, guys, I guess. That's right. Um, yeah. I, next time we do a, a Woodhouse, I'm going to contact Abrams, who now owns Overlook, and and basically, you know, say, get with Woodhouse. it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, also right. sponsor and, our show. And I'm going to, yeah. I think what I might do is make the request by just scouring through all the Overlook copies of Woodhouse books that I have, <laughs> and then transcribing various lines into an email that essentially says what I'm looking for and seeing if they get it. Because if they don't, then maybe they don't deserve to publish maybe P.G. Woodhouse's novels. That's right. So, Sean, we're going to end with chapter 13, which is uh, the episode, I mean, not the episode, the chapter in which, though I guess it feels like an episode, episode, right? Yeah, it does feel like an episode. The chapter in which uh, Percy Pillbeam, the rascal, as Heidi said, uh, gets himself, uh, he invites too many cocktails cocktails with ice. Yeah. Um, And he he uh, lights the beacons. He does. He lights the beacons <laughs> in this one way, too many Colby times. And I have much in common. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, so that's where we're going to end this section. So, Sean, I was wondering if you could do a quick summary of the events that occur from chapter six until that point. And Sean didn't know I was going to do that. It's yeah. one of my favorite pastimes. Uh-huh. This is a hard one to do that with. Soup. Here we do. We could just start tossing out some highlights. Right. So we start in. We left off with. The breaking of the engagements. Mm, tragic. Right? And so then Sue... We've never quite right, recovered from that. No, this is true. Well, I needed so many cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, in fact, what Ronnie, when we pick up with Ronnie, he's drinking cocktails and, uh, and um, you know, moping. Uh, Sue has the brilliant idea to follow up on the lie told to Lady Constance and impersonate the rich heiress from America go to Blandings in order to regain her lost love, Ronnie. And uh, Hugo, at the same time, or thereabouts, hatches his own plan to kidnap the Empress of Blandings so that he can produce her and win his way back into the good graces of Lord Emsworth and Millicent. Which subsequently then becomes somebody else's plan. That's right. As yeah. well. Or, and it was already Ronnie's plan, right? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So there's a, the kidnapped pig keeps trading hands. Uh, Pillbeam is contracted by Parslow Parslow to <laughs> steal Galahad's reminiscences. And if at first he throws his hands up thinking he has no way of accessing Blanding's castle, then he remembers conveniently that he was just offered a job investigating a missing pig at Blanding's castle. So he takes said job as a ruse. Convenient uh, that. That's right. So that he can uh, toss the place looking for the reminiscences. And then uh, everybody arrives at Blanding's castle. Sue's identity is uh, 
quickly, quickly. <laughs> quickly revealed to several characters. Despite the fact that they sent letters to the real uh the schoon was a schoonmaker uh, yeah, that right. she uh that but uh, scarlet was scarlet fever or something like that has <laughs> taken over the estate they did they, they did try their best but yeah you know when when uh theater maven started arriving and starts to throw some things <laughs> in uh, chaos uh general uh, hilarity ensues i guess uh the the elder occupants of landings accept a dinner invitation by Parslow Parslow to get them out of the house so the Pillbeam can do his uh, hunting and searching and stealing. In the meantime, uh, Millicent accidentally discovers the missing pig. Uh, it scares her because she thinks that it is a man. Uh, Hugo arrives just in time. A German to com- in to her. Oh, That's right. A, <laughs> a man speaking German in the dark. Hugo arrives yeah. just in time to, uh, to comfort her and uh, patch things up with her at the same moment. Then they hatch the plan to move the pig uh, to... Well, because they they encountered the butler, Beach, That's coming right. to feed it. That's right. They surprised Beach coming to feed up? it. They say, what's up? And then Beach says, oh, I did this for you so that Hugh, you and Hugo <laughs> could... So they take advantage of this. Uh, they move the pig to Baxter's uh, RV. <laughs> His RV. <laughs> His caravan. Uh, and then... Everybody makes their way back up to the house for dinner, at which point Pillbeam gets a little tossed, uh, lights the beacons, and confesses a little a little too freely to Hugo that he saw him moving the pig. And that's about where we are. And he also has a little encounter with Ronnie. Right. And Ronnie now is... He, he did propose to Millicent, who then quickly accepted. And then minutes later, Ronnie felt that he had gone too far. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's, and so that's part of why Hugo, Hugo and Millicent have to make things up, because she has accepted a proposal from Ronnie, which she then subsequently breaks without you know, unceremoniously. So, okay, you know what, let's, let's, let's just talk right away off the bat about some of our favorite lines and stuff that we've kind of marked up or noted. I mean, it is one of the great things about reading Woodhouse is you could just sit around. I mean, we could read the whole book aloud to each other, break some copyright laws and laugh for an hour. Um, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's, just, let's just dig in. Heidi, are there any lines, any moments, anything that you marked that uh, stood out the most? The whole conversation between... Sir Gal- anything with Lord Emsworth is gold. <laughs> um, the whole conversation between Parslow, Parslow, Lord Emsworth, and Galahad, I was like laughing really loudly in a public place reading that. <laughs> um, and I'm crazy about the coot reference, like the coot joke that goes through that. Matt is a coot. Yeah, which chapter is that in again? That's um, a job for Percy Pilbeam. It's yeah. section two, chapter yeah. seven. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of that marked up. It's so great. Um, I love everything about it. The blood pressure joke, the running <laughs> joke. When Lord Emsworth says, why a coot? Asked Lord Emsworth, who had been brooding for some time in silence. <laughs> oh my gosh it's so funny and i really Um, i just like that whole exchange is comedy gold so that section last night i was reading it um in the living room and bethany was across the room working on some stuff on her computer like very focused and i was just (laughs) laughing out loud the whole time and stopping and reading and there's this bit 
in that section where it's describing Gregory Parslow, Parslow, seventh baronet of his line, who was one of those men who start their lives well, skid for a while and slide back onto the straight and narrow path and stay there. And in the next paragraph after that, it says this, but there had been a decade in his life, that dangerous <laughs> decade of the 20s, when he had accumulated a past so substantial that a less able man would have been compelled to spread it over a far longer period. <laughs> I also had that passage part. <clears throat> and then um, right after that, he, he, he uh, it says, the Honorable Galahad was regarding him through his monocle rather as a cook eyes a black beetle on discovering it in the kitchen sink. It was a look which would have aroused Peak in a slug, and once more the squire of Matchingham's bewilderment gave way to wrath. What the devil do you mean? He demanded. See his face? Asked the Honorable Galahad in a rasping aside. I'm looking at it now, said Lord Emsworth. Guilt written upon it. Plainly. I, I love those little asides where he's like, see his face? And then Emsworth's like, I'm looking at it right now. Parslow, you sheep-faced shambling exile from hell. Disgorge that pig immediately. Oh, it's so funny. There's also right before that section, Emsworth and Galahad decide to go off and um, look him squarely in the eye <laughs> and he said, and, uh, and tax him. And it says, Lord Emsworth had reached the hall and was peering agitatedly to right and left. Where the devil's my hat? I can't find my hat. Someone's always hiding my hat. I will not have my hats hidden. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely something it's I'm going to so start funny. saying. There's also like a throwaway line that made me laugh really hard when it's not in this scene. It's later, but it's with Lord Emsworth. I think it's somebody says to him, do you remember what I told you the other day? He says, no, I don't. Because he never remembers what anybody tells him the other day. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> you got anything? Oh, man. Uh, it's another one of those throwaway lines, but someone there, someone is trying to remind him about Miss Shoemaker. And he says, oh, yes, the cloud was passing from what, for want of a better word, must be called Lord Emsworth's mind. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, to be sure. <laughs> so in that same chapter, um, seven, A Job for Percy Pilgrim, it begins. So I actually want to talk about the weather in this book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he's really, you know, the pathetic fallacy thing. Playing on the pathetic fallacy. <laughs> he's really playing on it. And it, it's really obvious about it, too. And there's a lot of meta stuff where he's talking about the, the job of a writer, and it was particularly with Galahad. Um, but it, at the beginning of seven, it says sunshine calling to all right thinking men to come out and revel in its heartening warmth poured in at the windows of the great library of Blanding's castle. But to Clarence, ninth Earl of Emsworth, much as he liked sunshine as a rule, it brought no cheer. Um, he looked like something that had just been prepared for stuffing by a taxidermist. A moralist watching Lord Emsworth in his travail would have reflected smugly that it cuts both wise, both ways this business of being a peer of the realm with large private means and a good digestion. Unalloyed prosperity, he would have pointed out in his offensive way, tends to, <laughs> that's my favorite part, in his offensive way, because a moralist says things offensively, tends to enervate. And in this world of ours, full of alarms and uncertainties, where almost anything is apt to drop suddenly on top of your head without warning at almost any moment, what one needs is to be tough and alert. When some <laughs> outstanding disaster happens to the ordinary man, it finds him prepared. Years of missing the 845, taking the dog for a run on rainy nights, coming down to breakfast, discerning that they, discovering that they have burned the bacon again, have given protective hardness, so that by the time his wife's relations arrive for a long visit, he's ready for them. <laughs> And then it says, it goes on, it says, can we wonder then that in the agony of this sudden treacherous blow, he felt stunned and looked eviscerated? Is it not, su <clears throat> is it surprising that the sunshine made no appeal to him? 
May we not consider him justified as he sat there in swallowing a lump in the throat like an ostrich gulping down a brass doorknob? The answer to these questions in the order given is no, no, and yes. <laughs> so great. Even his list of problems, which you skipped, are the best. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Go ahead, read it. Read funny. it. Read it. Um, Lord Emsworth had had none of this salutary training. Fate hitherto had seemed to spend its time thinking of ways of pampering him. He ate well, slept well, and had no money troubles. He grew the best roses in Shropshire. He had won a first prize for pumpkins at that county's agricultural show, a thing no Earl of Emsworth had ever done before. And just previous to the, I love this sentence so much, just previous to the point at which this chronicle opens, his younger son, Frederick, had married the daughter of an American millionaire and had gone to live 3,000 miles away from Blanding's castle with lots of good deep water in between him and it. <laughs> he had come to look on himself as great. Spoiled darling. Can we wonder then? And then it goes on. So his, like, even his good fortune and his problems are so... Ridiculous. So funny. Yeah. And then the Frederick joke comes back again later because he's like, he would have rather hung out with his, his youngest son, oh, Frederick. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Emsworth shrugged his shoulders hopelessly. He generally did when people asked him what he was going to do about things. Yeah. <laughs> I love the recurring the recurring joke that emerges around the middle Uh after Millicent, after Millicent mentioned she's been reading Schopenhauer. Oh, yeah. And then we continually get... Definitely want to talk about this. Glimpses of Schopenhauer's lamb and Schopenhauer's butcher. <laughs> so you can't, we can't, we got to actually read some of those lines because they're so funny. Yeah, that's um, fair. Oh, the stuff where Galahad's get so excited about the youth because they're, they're, they actually have a plot. I love that whole, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's my second favorite conversation. <laughs> Um, and then the stuff about the object of literature. I think he's actually worse than he was two years ago. Then at least he never fell out of windows. <laughs> Statistics relating to madness among coots are not at hand, but we may be safely doubt whether even in the ranks of these notoriously unbalanced birds that could have been found at this moment, one who was feeling half as mad as he did. Um, where is that? All I right, so the Schopenhauer is uh, chapter 11, more shocks for Sue, section three. And it's like three pages into it. Oh, yeah. Hello, said Millicent from the depths. <laughs> Hello, said Sue. I wrote in the in the margin at some point, like like four times, emo. Yeah. Millicent's <laughs> like great. the emo character in the movie. Yeah. In, the, in the movie, like Little Miss Sunshine, she's Paul Dano's character. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's astonishing to me that any one individual can be such a poop. You'd have thought it would have required a large syndicate. <laughs> <laughs> Ever read Schopenhauer? Yes. No, no. you should. Great stuff. She fell into a heavy silence again. <laughs> Her eyes peering into the gathering gloom. It comes back later too, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Like the tennis, like the character in Tennyson's poem who followed the gleam. He followed the butler. <laughs> there was but one point about Beach, which even remotely resembled a gleam, but it happened to be the one at which this moment really mattered. He was easy to follow. Anyway, we'll come, I'm sure we'll discover the more as we're flipping through. We'll find more of the. Oh, here. Um, what's that book you're reading? It belongs, this is on 161 and the storm clouds hover over Blandings. It belongs to uh, Aunt Constance, Millicent Glane, glanced wanly at the cover. It seems to be about the theosophy. Theosophy? Fancy a young girl in the prime of life. What the devil has happened to everybody in this house? There's some excuse, perhaps, for Clarence. If you admit the possibility of a sane man getting so attached to a beastly pig, he has the right to be upset. But what's wrong with all the rest of you? Ronald goes about behaving like a bereaved tomato. Beach springs up and down when you speak to him, and that young fellow Carmody, 
And then they go on and on. And then it says, Hugo decided that his right leg was not a success. He stood on his left again. What's the book about? Transmigration of souls. I think I'm not very well up on. <laughs> um, okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about um, the, like uh, the meta aspects of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here's kind of a, is kind of a silly question. But do you think that the the meta aspects of Woodhouse really do work on a meta level or is it just sort of like oh haha ha, he's being clever? Like does does Woodhouse have stuff to say about writing and literature other than just like kind of making people chuckle? What do you think, Sean? Uh I'm never I'm never entirely sure uh if if what he has to say in that regard rises to the level of insight. Sometimes it does, but I don't know that it's a sustained insight. What do you mean what by do you that? Think, I'm uh, curious I, what you mean by sustained. Yeah, yeah. I think that he makes, and maybe this is not giving him enough credit. Um, I guess it depends on what you're trying to give him credit for. I think he makes a lot of his meta comments in order to amuse and some of them are truly insightful, but I don't think they're contributing to an, a larger insight that he's trying to painstakingly build over the course of an entire book. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think that that's exactly right. I, th- I mean, he's incredibly intelligent, razor sharp, but he comes at these questions, I think, with a set of assumptions um, rather than a point he's trying to make. Yeah. Um, and, and he is, he's a serious writer, like in the sense of, um, the same way that we might say that, uh, you know, Baryshnikov is like a serious ballet dad. Like he's incredible. (laughs) He's an incredible writer. He's serious. Uh, but he's not trying to use humor and comedy to make a larger point. I think he's just having fun and being really, really razor sharp and satirical, um, as he goes about it. Uh, and I think that makes his points of insight more compelling than if he was being some kind of activist about it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So there's two sections that are like pretty meta. One's the beginning of chapter eight, the storm clouds hover over Blandings. And it's in Galahad's POV. Um, and it says, having reread the half dozen pages which he had written since luncheon, the Honorable Galahad Threepwood, and I guess I should say the on Galahad <laughs> Threepwood, attached them with a brass paper fastener to the main body of his monumental work and placed the manuscript in its drawer lovingly like a young mother putting her firstborn to bed. (laughs) The day's work was done. Rising from the desk, he yawned and stretched himself. He was ink-stained, but cheerful. Happiness, as solid thinkers have pointed out, comes from giving pleasure to others. And the little anecdote which he had just committed to paper would, he knew, give great pleasure to a considerable number of his fellow men. All over England, they would be rolling out of their seats when they read it. True, their enjoyment might possibly not be shared to its fullest extent by Sir Gregory Parslow Parslow of Matching Ball, <laughs> for what the on Galahad had just written was the story of the prawns. But the first lesson an author has to learn is that he cannot please everybody. <laughs> um, so there's that. He, there's a few other spots. But then in Shock for Sue, after she um, she reads Baxter's letter to her, you know, he Baxter jumps out the window and then uh, Emsworth 
calls him insane. So then he takes it upon himself to write a letter to Sue, which says, I'm not insane, but also Emsworth is. And uh, so then Sue says, she thought it a good letter, neat and well-expressed. Why it had been written, she could not imagine. <laughs> it had not occurred to her that love, or at any rate, a human desire to marry a wealthy heiress, had begun to burgeon in R.J. Baxter's bosom with no particular emotions other than the feeling that he was, that if he was counting on playing bezique, is that how you say that? I think I so, know. yeah. Bezique with her after dinner, he was due for a disappointment. She put the letter in her pocket and looked out over the park again. The object of all good literature is to purge the soul of its petty troubles. This, she was pleased to discover, Baxter's letter had succeeded in doing. Recalling its polished phrases, she found herself smiling appreciatively. The muttering sky did not look so menacing now. Everything, she told herself, was going to be all right. After all, she didn't ask much from fate, just an uninterrupted five minutes with Ronnie. Okay, so these two sections, there's just two of several sections that are about like the goal of writing. Do you do you think that Woodhouse, in putting these two in these two passages, one from the perspective of Sue about this letter and one in Galhad's point of view, is he being earnest about about the like claims he makes about writing? I think he makes we, I think he assumes them, but not doesn't preach them. Sure, okay. So um, do you think but do you think he's yeah. making fun of himself? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, and yeah, I think he so. makes for sure. And in the introduction, he talks specifically about criticisms that he's gotten right. about true, his true. books and uh, his just plot put all the characters, characters yeah. right? Yeah. And so he kind of works that back into the novel itself. Um, and I, he, that it's very. I mean, you guys know that. The, I'm not saying anything. Anything other than you know, the obvious, he's very British. This is very like that kind of like self-deprecating circular circularity right. is very British. Um, and that satirical eye, um, and satirical like mind. Um, but so I'm sure you guys remember from, um, the screw tape letters when Lewis talks about humor and he talks about, um, uh, screw tape is instructing Wormwood on how to use humor to uh, like bring a soul into hell. And right. um, and he talks about three types of humor. The first being the joke proper, like a dirty joke. And he's like, that really can't that that doesn't damn souls. Right. Like, um, uh, hmm. but he says the kind of humor that can actually damn a soul that you can use as a temptation to bring a soul to hell is flippancy. That's the worst, like most diabolical form of humor. Um, and I we have a, a lot, a lot of humor in the public square right now is flippancy. Right. Um, like a mocking what matters. Um, mm -hmm. And Lewis says, once you can laugh at what is good, like you have crossed a line into like a diabolical realm. Um, but that's not at all what Woodhouse does. Like he doesn't mock what is good. He mocks what is ridiculous or what is sometimes what is wicked, but mostly just what is hypocritical or silly or unintelligent or uh, he he's his satire is good humored in the sense that it's not flippant. It's not unkind. It's not mocking what is good. It stands on a bedrock of what is good and then from mm. there um points out what is ridiculous and is able to laugh at it lightheartedly it's not dark 
Um, and I actually think there is a place for dark humor. We've talked about that on the show before when yeah. we read the Netanyahu's, mm-hmm. we talked about what could be redeeming about dark humor, but that's not what this is. Um, but I think if he ever was earnest in this, in the sense of like using his comedy to promote an aim, a social aim, I think it would demean what he's doing. I think it would diminish it. It has yeah, to have I, that kind of ironic circularity to it. Yeah, I think he is in earnest in his jesting. Uh, and he picks he picks all kinds of soft targets, but but they're common in in his own day. Uh, the you know, the elitist aristocrat that is no longer any good to society uh, to, to the society that they exist in. There's, I think it's past where we have agreed to talk about, but um, there's a great joke about noblesse oblige uh, <laughs> later on that maybe we can return to when we uh, next episode that that sort of skewers one of the characters for being too uppity, and um, there's you know a thousand jokes at the expense of these goofy aristocrats, but then uh, the sort of soulless mercenary like middle class bourgeois types are also uh taken to task. I mean Pillbeam is <laughs> an, uh, you know just the, the most unpleasant human being. Uh and the efficient Baxter is yeah, right. close close to that. <laughs> no one's really it really escapes his right. Skewering. And these and these are all these are all exaggerated types of people that are real. Mm-hmm. Uh and so there is a kind of broad, earnest jesting, but yeah, he's not. It's not. Um, it's not propaganda. He's not. Uh, he's not uh, writing social criticism. So, do you think that he is? So, if nobody is left unskewered, so to speak, does the reader come off unskewered? Hmm. Like, is he kind of bringing you in? Does he make fun of you as you're reading it? Because in this book. I think he's being uh, pretty more self-aware and making fun of himself in in more For than sure. in other books. Certainly yeah. in the introduction where he says, I'm getting this criticism, so the joke's going to be on you. I'm just going to bring all my own characters <laughs> in and I'm going to use the same names. I'm not even going to change them. But then there's the jokes that I'm mentioning here about writers and there's the narrator himself is pretty, is sort of like self-aware about yeah. the, all the situations. and and um, I think it's easy for us to say that the reader gets away unscathed because we're not his contemporary audience. I think yeah, that yeah. I think that line uh, from Galahad uh, about the author having to learn that they can't please everybody uh, probably uh, rings a little truer or is more like a subtle defense of his art uh, to his own contemporary audience, which would be made up of people who are more like not entirely like, but more like the characters in the novel. So you know how you read a book and sometimes it doesn't have to be a comedy. It could be any book. It could be Kristen Lavin's daughter where people are making bad decisions or something where people are being heroic. And you could say, I see a seed of myself there mm-hmm. yeah, or there, but for the grace of God, go, you know, all that sort of, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. When you read something like this, do you see, do you ever like recognize something about yourself in it? Now, maybe someone to your point, Sean, who's living in like 1920 in England and is in any part of the the system there. 
the societal structure might recognize themselves more. But do you think he's like, is it the role in society that he's skewering or is it the, the personality that he's skewering? Um, because then that how you see yourself might be different based on right. that. What do you think, Heidi? Like, for do you ever look me, at this and see yourself for in me, any of these they, Woodhouse women? <laughs> no, for me, they feel, it feels, it feels like reading Shakespeare. Like uh, I, nobody reads Shakespeare and is like, I am Rosalind, right? Like, <laughs> except for your daughter, Sean. <laughs> yeah, um, third day's coming. Right. Um, maybe Beatrice and Benedict are the closest you ever get to that in Shakespeare. I think that, um, or a little bit in Hamlet. I was going to say maybe Hamlet. Yeah, but most people aren't like, man, like if I am like anybody in literature, it's definitely the Lady Macbeth. Um, I, <laughs> but... But that being said, there's a generality to, there's this archetypal quality of like humankind, like the weak man and the overbearing nagging woman, right? That we see in somebody like Millicent in her youth and then somebody like, you know, she's going to turn into Lady Constance someday, right? And there's always that sense there's there's this big gap in the generations in Woodhouse, like you don't see anybody in the middle, Right. You don't like meet people raising their 10 year old kids ever. Right. You read like the uh, the exaggerated, middle aged, ridiculous. I mean, and there's a direct reference to this in, in this book with um, Ronnie and Sir Galahad and Sue's attraction to both of them um, and yeah. how they don't like each other right? Um, he's a poop, right? How could you be in love with that guy? And she's like, everybody says he's just like you. How dare right. they say that, right? So there is that in it, that human element, but it feels much more archetypal and exaggerated than specific. And and I'll give you another example of that. I'm also at the same time, this is kind of funny. I didn't bring Summer Lightning with me on my vacation, um, but I <laughs> Which I should have, because that's like an actual beach read. (laughs) This is like the kind of thing people should read on beaches. I left it at home. And instead, I brought with me Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which I'd never (laughs) read before. And I've read that all week. And and that book... No wonder you ended up with Montezuma's Revenge. (laughs) Yeah. So it was great. Um, I And I loved it. I I haven't finished it yet. And I actually don't even know how it ends. Um, but anyway, uh, that book is the opposite to me of Woodhouse. It's that book. When you're reading it, the characters feel so human and specific that you miss the archetypes until you think about it later. And then here, everybody's so archetypal that the, you kind of miss the human and specific until you're thinking about it later. Yeah. It's, it's so atmospheric. I was thinking about that more as you're you're talking. Woodhouse or the idiot? That, well, both, w- both in <laughs> different, different ways. ways, but but or having Montezuma's revenge in Mexico. <laughs> the the way that you see yourself in Woodhouse characters is more in the atmosphere. I think there is something so universal about the foibles that these characters have, but they don't map one to one onto you, or maybe yeah. even onto any particular person. But but the the conglomerate uh, is very human. And is skewering parts of human nature that are uh, very universal, but I think you you sort of get that in the aggregate more than seeing it in particular instances. Right. So, when people read these books, almost always they tend to be like, "Oh, that that was very, you know," they're at least going to say that was very funny. You know, right. I, I had a great time reading it. But 
I have this experience sometimes in the shop, like uh, as a bookseller where people will ask for something humorous or funny and they've already read, you know, all the David Sedaris books or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I try to convince them to read PG Woodhouse and they have, there's this resistance to it because it's, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you haven't heard of his reputation or you're not aware of, if you don't have friends that love it or whatever, then to me resisted to it because it's a, it's, oh, it's pre-World War II yeah. highbrow English people. Yeah. I don't even like the monarchy, you know, <laughs> you know, down with the crown, all, you know, this, you know, just like stuff that people might, they wouldn't put it that way in most cases, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so I tried to explain to them, no, 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 it's, it's more universal than that. You're going to like it. You're going to laugh. And then if they do choose it, they almost always do like it. Right. So on the, I've got kind of a two part question here. If you were talking to somebody in that situation, how would you sell PG Woodhouse to the person who has never, is not really aware of it yet. And the concept sounds resist, sounds like they're not that interested in it, but also why do you think it is that 21st century Americans are some of the people that most love PG Woodhouse, much like, you know, in the eighties and nineties, CS Lewis had this huge Renaissance among American Christians. I mean, Woodhouse is so popular among a certain set of American book lovers that's, you know, expanded his growth far beyond just the English reading, reading populace, which of course was who he was first pop. He was popular with initially. Right. So Heidi, like those, let's do those two questions. Think about those two questions. Which one would you like to talk about first? I do think they're related though. That's a good question. I, I, I'm intrigued by your first question. How would I sell it? I think I would probably read some aloud. So what you're saying is we need to have a read aloud night at the shop for adults where we just read PG Woodhouse aloud and then or you drink a cocktail and then like everyone goes home. Or you ready. You keep a copy behind. That's right. You just uh, whip it out. Yeah. I'm so like glad you asked. It. <laughs> it's got a three and, by six card. Yeah. Right? Um, and have something ready to read because I I do think that Woodhouse, that, that readers who are more widely read enjoy Woodhouse more. Because there's hmm. so oh, yeah. many allusions uh, to Shakespeare, to Milton, yeah, like the Edmund Crispin right? book, exactly. Yes, yeah. um, and but it's funny anyway. Uh, so, but I, if they need to be persuaded, I think probably no experience is better than just reading reading it to them for a little bit. I don't know how else I would do it other than all the things that you just said. So yeah, let's do that. Let's have a PG Woodhouse read aloud. <laughs> and it sounds like you need to just have a, a nice poster made with, you know, the funniest PG Woodhouse passage imaginable and just put it up in your shop next to the Woodhouse section. Or just my favorite one-liners. Oh, there you go. You know, have I told, I told you guys the story of seeing the Woodhouse section at Hatchards in London, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for, if I have never mentioned this to on the show, I probably have. Um, when Bethany and I were in London back in May, Hatcher's is one of the, the greatest bookstores anywhere. I mean, it's like 1792 or something like that. And uh, they have two huge sections of like two huge sh shelves that make up this big section of all PG Woodhouse books, beautiful editions, you know, and it was kind of like blew my mind. It's like, you know, bookstore goals. And it just goes to show how popular those books still are a hundred years on, you know, especially with English people. Um, Sean, what do you think about the the second question I asked? Like, what is it that makes him still popular now? Uh, 
I I think I think it's sort of what I was touching on earlier that even though the setting is very uh, dated, or it's the setting is a it's time time locked is that the right word? Uh, it's it's very particular uh, to a time and a place in the culture of pre-World War II Britain. And there's a way in which there's no returning to that for modern readers. But everything that's going on uh, behind the setting and the circumstance is so universal because it is just a story about uh, like exaggerated human foibles that are ridiculous but instantly recognizable. Uh, people are silly and goofy and petty and <laughs> uh, and yeah, you know, unfeeling all the time, forever. And that's really what the Woodhouse characters are doing. Uh, they're just doing it in uh, a situation that we're not as familiar with. And maybe that's part of the appeal too, uh, right? That period, you know, this is the, and we're still, I think, living in the age of Downton Abbey and uh, you know, where the, the period piece is a huge draw. And so I think the universality of the comedy mixed with uh, the draw of the period is probably working really strongly in Woodhouse's favor at the moment. That's true. Of course, this book is 1929, so it's, you know, the 20s are one of those periods that people are generally pretty interested in. Mm -hmm. That's right. This book didn't... We are, Oh, so who drafted a... You drafted Woodhouse, right? In the Sean, which mm -hmm. one did you draft again? Oh, yeah, I drafted, oh, one of the Jeeves books. I don't remember which one. That makes sense. Yeah, the did Inimitable you, Jeeves, maybe? Maybe. That's I love the joke in this book where he... he kind of makes fun of himself for Jeeves being super smart where they're all like, Oh, you what a genius idea that this butler had. And he first, your head should be, your brain Donate should be put into a museum. Yeah. And it's like, it's really bad idea. And Beach is not anywhere near like Jeeves, but it just makes fun but of it. It wasn't whole even his idea. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I just so had I, like a Woodhouseian moment, by the way, I'm sitting here recording <laughs> and my kids are like around me trying to talk to me and I'm shooing them away. Like this, right? Because I am working. And they know that. Respect um, the boundaries. Right? Yeah. They're teenagers. They can figure out their life. Uh, so, And you just go marry an heiress. Is that true of teenagers? The ocean. Um, well, they need I mean, to they can live by themselves for 90 minutes. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, yeah, they can't yeah. figure out their life, but they can. Right. Like, they're okay, not going to die. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't think, right. but they might with this moment that's happening. So I'm just <laughs> talking like yeah. they're trying to talk to me and I'm shooing them away. Um, you guys are kind enough to not comment on it on the air while I'm like gesturing. <laughs> and um, like and batting then, flies. Then I like out of the corner of my eye, I see movement in the window and I just saw my car back out of the driveway. <laughs> like I don't know where Which they child? in my I'm car. Sure it's fine. Which child? Both. I think both of them. Like I Does just Lucy, saw. My can Lucy car. drive? No, I think Jack. I what I'm guessing <laughs> is happening. I'm putting my gigantic brain. I need to donate to science here. I think Lucy was asking me permission to go somewhere, and I was shooing her away. 
So she took and that. And then she asked Jack. <laughs> and then I think oh. Jack came and his, I need to take his car somewhere tonight, borrow his car. Um, and so I think he's like, just took my car to take Lucy wherever she wants to go. So that, it of course, now he gets to drive my the, place, the, but I don't know where the they Tesla. are. Yeah. And, and he wants to drive the Tesla. They're probably going dancing at Mario's. Uh, maybe so. I don't yep. know, but I'm just, like, his feet I'm, have been getting itchy. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just working. I've got a podcast to record. They're going to figure it out. And I'm sure it's right. fine. Right. It right. was I, a really funny <laughs> moment. I shoo them away and then I just see them drive off. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that. I mean, don't bother me. <laughs> so, Heidi, one of the things about reading Woodhouse or yeah. any any book of comedy is uh, it's a little bit tricky to know exactly how to talk about it on a podcast like this because you yeah. want you don't want to you don't want to ruin it right. you don't want to overthink you don't want to overthink it yeah and uh, so if you were reading this with your kids for example or you're just wanting or you're doing a Woodhouse read aloud night or whatever or say you're doing it on a podcast with friends um, for several thousand people to uh, to to listen to. What what do you think is the right way to talk about Woodhouse, generally speaking? I'm not asking, you know, like I, I, it occurred to me yesterday that I, I had all these questions to ask, but I didn't want to ruin the experience for people. I don't want to, yeah. you know, I don't want to, my dad has that weird metaphor about like giving kids a puppy and then basically like killing the tearing puppy. It, like yep. killing the puppy. We murder and, like, to dissect. <laughs> right. And I think, is it Esselin that talks? It's, he uses the reference from one of the Dickens books, Anthony Esselin does, about how you... Oh, grad grind and the horse. Grad grind, yeah. the horse, yeah. yeah. So how do you read a book like this, which is designed, first and foremost, to bring pleasure, to make yeah. you laugh? Um, how do you read it in a way that's like active and um, I think, also trying to be like insightful? I think in this setting, sort of the way that we have been doing it. I mean, even though there are... I felt more in these two episodes that we, you know, we run into awkward pauses or moments where we're not quite sure where to go next. But it's really because um, we're trying to spend most of our time just enjoying it out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think if we do try and analyze too much, something is lost because it's not. It's also it's not going to stand up to that because it's not made for that. So that was going to be a follow-up question. Yeah, I, I, what do you think? I mean, do you think that you can, you think you you could dissect a book like this? I think that it would murder it. Um, I, I think that the characters are internally consistent, right? Which is why they work. I think that this <laughs> the question you're asking, um, also I think oh, it connects to your earlier question, which is why are we still reading it? hundred years later um, because to the point we've made a couple times, the difference between Beach and Jeeves is compelling. It's uh, it's obvious and it's consistent. Like Beach is a kind of person as well as a kind of character. Jeeves is a kind of person as well as a kind of character. Ronnie is a different person from Hugo. Millicent is a different person than Sue. Galahad is a different person, right? So they have a personhood uh, and an individuality as well as being archetypal. And they work. And the decisions that they make in the story, no matter how ridiculous and over the top, um, are consistent with the kind of person that... um, that Woodhouse has crafted them to be to kind of fill this archetype. Um, 
And and I think that's one of the reasons why we're reading it a hundred years later and enjoying them um, and talking about them and laughing about them. But at the same time, if we treat them as like the psychology of Woodhouse then and try to talk about it the way we talk about Kristen Lovren's daughter, then I think we murder it. Because the whole yeah. point is that we state this, that the, the terms of the novel set by the author and the audience is that they are lighthearted. And that's by, by definition, not a lighthearted endeavor to like psychoanalyze something. And, but I also think on the flip side, if we, if we, when talking about Kristen Lovren's daughter, it's not appropriate to treat it like a joke because yeah. the terms of that novel are different. And most novels are serious um, in the sense of like not laughing, haha, serious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this novel kind of defies convention and transcends both the humor genre and and it it just defies categorization in that it way. It really does, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think we know exactly how to talk about it in like a book club setting. So I think that we just laugh. And but I do think what does work is talking about the craft of the writing, which this yeah. is like this is David's moment to shine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only question I have about what you're saying is I basically agree with what both of you are saying, and yet the notion of satire is sort of inherently serious, right? True. Because the to satirize something is to question its place and purpose, and so when I and then also other things, that's just like I'm oversimplifying. No, I think that that's definition fair. of satire. Yeah. yeah. But so you get the sections, for example, when he says, like, there are those who maintain and make a nice income by doing so in the evening papers, that <laughs> in these degenerate days, the old hardy spirit of Britain has died out. Right. And yeah. you go on and on about Galahad thinking about what it means to be British. And there's lots of commentary in these books about that's kind of both making fun of, well, it's satirizing you know, this British spirit and it ties the weather into it and how they're like, you know, they came from Nordic, you know, uh, blood and like, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're reminded stock. every now and then they're good British. Yeah. yeah. So there's all that kind of stuff in it. And in commenting on and satirizing what it means to be British and what it means to be upper class and to be part of the, that system at the time, it's sort of like is inherently asking serious questions about what it means to be British. And so one of the questions I have about reading Woodhouse is to what extent should we take seriously the questions that by like the, the the satire is inherently asking? Maybe I'm asking a question like that because I, you know, I'm kind of an Anglophile. I love England. I love English literature. I love people who play with the language and these characters, and um, and it annoys me when they do it poorly and stuff like that. So I'm interested in the questions that that satire is asking. But can you, like, can, if you start thinking about the seriousness of the satire, does that take you into the realm of murdering to dissect Heidi? Oh man. I, I don't know because you're, you're totally right. Um, another example of this, of what you're talking about is just the very simple choice of, of Woodhouse in the Jeeves and Worcester um, novels calling his, Jeeves, or excuse me, Worcester's Club, the Drones Club, right? right so yeah. simple, but it is so satirical. It's brilliant, <laughs> right? Because a drone is a sterile, faceless bee, right? Like, and yeah. so that's so. Like, it, that immediately you can't do that without it having meaning attached to it. That's exactly right. right. Right, and. 
and yet you can just laugh. just as easily today call you know say that the young men are part of a drones club right like and so i think that that is so important to what Woodhouse is doing. But I think Woodhouse's purpose in it is to make us laugh. And and sure, he yeah. leaves the serious... Uh, I keep using the word serious in two different ways. <laughs> um, which is bad rhetoric. So is, by one of them but, you mean important, and yes, the other you mean... Thank you. Weighty. Not, yes. not yeah. humorous. Yes. And I think he leaves the weighty social commentary to others and gives us the lighthearted social commentary to do exactly what he says in this novel. The purpose of literature is to like lift the burden of the soul. And I think he takes that seriously. And I mean yeah. that in the sense of weightily. I think he takes humor seriously and believes that it can lift the burden of the thing that he's satirizing. And I think that we do him a disservice if we kind of take it as a social propaganda piece to try to fix the problem, like, you know, bring us to action, like rally the troops in order to like save the young men. I don't think he's yeah. doing that. But I think at but the same time, time uh, well, I think at the same time that he is, his humor is meant to create a kind of unease yeah that's right anytime you laugh at anything it's a little bit less firm or you you take it you take it for granted a little less true true and so he doesn't he doesn't insist on having the the weightier conversations but he does sort of shake things loose to make them possible maybe and so the one the other metaphor for like murdering to dissect is that uh, that metaphor that J.R.R. Tolkien uses when he's talking about Beowulf, these uh, men who find an ancient tower, and to to learn more about it, they knock it down and study the stones. Uh, and the the end of his long discourses on this metaphor is what they didn't realize is from the top of the tower, the man who built it could see the ocean, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there is, and the ocean is a weighty thing, right? Uh, uh, is a transcendent thing and, and a seemingly well, as Emsworth, thing. As Emsworth implied, we, with the distance that he created between him and his youngest son. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> or the or the Sargasso Sea of the like the garden oh, trash heap. Oh, I laughed. I laughed so hard at the Sargasso Sea line. <laughs> but so I think that. Right, the the Woodhouse comedy then, even the like the satirical comedy, maybe isn't hiding the big conversation inside of itself, but uh, you could still from from its its upper story, uh, you could see your way into those larger conversations without, I think, destroying uh, the thing that you've just enjoyed. It seems like he's one of those few writers who can, I don't know, like he he's the, he can he uh, can have his cake and eat it too. Yeah, right. I mean, he Can is I so singular an, in that. Yeah, an update on my family. Yeah, oh. I, I wish you would. I was getting <laughs> at the emergency room. I need now. this to have. I need this to end before <laughs> Jack, the episode not to end before this happens. Jack just texted me. Would you like to know what it says? I'm going to read it to you, word yeah. for word, verbatim. <laughs> verbatim. I took your car. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Saw. I saw that part. <laughs> so. So, how did you respond? I said, I saw that. We're going. <laughs> Has and he responded that, yet? Nope. Nope. Silent. Are we getting? Are we getting the the dots? No dots. 
Don't just, die. Don't took die. My car. Oh boy. All right. He, that's yeah, hilarious. He I'll didn't keep get, you He didn't give you any more information. <laughs> no. He thought, you know what? She's going to walk into the garage and she's going to see that her car is gone. And it might be better to head off that shock. I appreciate he's let her not know. texting and driving. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. not you. Although he just voice text. Right. Connect to your speakers in that, <laughs> not Tesla you've got there. You know, if there was Tesla's when PG Woodhouse was writing, I feel like it would be one of the things. And, you know, we all love we, your Tesla, Heidi, but it does feel like it needs to be have some I good satire. Totally oh, go yeah. into we need some Tesla into satire. A, into yeah. a Woodhouse satire. Think about the thing we about do get a little car. We do get a little car satire in the end of the book. Oh. Oh, there is plenty of car satire. Yeah. 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 You know, so enjoy that. The thing, about, the thing about satire, though, is that contemporary satire operates on a different wavelength than, like, certainly than Woodhouse and even than someone like Jane Austen, where, you know, what's, what would be considered contemporary satire? I mean, like succession, <laughs> which is dark and, yeah. and it's very, very funny at times, but it's all about, I don't know that I would like, classify it's acidic. it as satire. Yeah. I mean, they consider it a satire. Like they were attempting to create satire, but it's so acidic. Um, and then, I mean, what the office, would the office be some satirical? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. but and still, so it's more it, of it's a yeah, it's right. But that office in some ways reminds me of of a Woodhouse book because, as to your point earlier, the characters feel like they're archetypes, but they're also feel real, like you, right? And everybody's kind of and it's super cringy. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's like embarrassed for them all the time. But do you think that's one of the reasons why we like Woodhouse now? Is that satire is one of those sort of things that are we like? Is our culture pitched to be able to accept or understand satire? Not in the way Woodhouse does it. I think for sure not yeah. because he does it from a fundamental assumption of what an honorable culture is. Yeah. Like he's speaking mm. from a moral bedrock that that is not he consistently draws on that. Exactly. Like directly. And and it's not just moral. It's in and I I thought that the whole like how he apologizes to the reader about Galahad not <laughs> And his lack of a moral fatherly oh, yeah, advice yeah, yeah. is so yeah, yeah. funny, right? So it's it's really that he's standing on this like code of honor and mocking from there, right? And in a so Pillbeam hmm. is not an honorable character. And Baxter doesn't have a sense of humor. So even though he's this very like dutiful secretary who's always trying to do the right thing he's still a jerk right he's still a pill um he's still annoying um yeah. and he makes it ridiculous uh lord emsworth that peer of the realm who's supposed to be the backbone <laughs> of english society has like the very meanest yeah. intelligence. So, so he can mock them because because there's a standing, standard that, yes that, yeah and the standard is assumed and and i think that's what makes Woodhouse so appealing to people like us who are trying to kind of like recover that and speak about literature from that. And yeah. so is Woodhouse um, just in from a pure, from a delightfully humorous point of view, but that's why we can, we're with him. Right. Um, and so I, I don't know of any modern sat contemporary satires that do that they're more like now it's just flippancy most of the time mm. yeah mm. yeah or the it seems like the other the only other kind of satire where 
suited to at the moment is like Swifty and satire that is right. just uh, real. I mean, bitter, <laughs> uh, but but so an activist. So yeah, so blatantly activistic and heavy-handed because that's we where subtlety is lost on us. Like everything has to have some kind of purpose, right? And um, it's right now we can't even laugh without it being policed by right. by by some kind of activist standard, one right. way or the other. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. always partisan, and uh, from either, yeah, we're defined political by... or social. Yeah, standard. We're defined by our divisions, not some social bedrock. Right. Right, and, Even that's, and that's a uniquely American thing. Yeah, although it's increasingly, you know, something that we're spreading across the globe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, let's let's for some final thoughts here. Let's wrap this episode up. Uh, next week we'll talk about the ending, and then we'll do the Q and A. So for some final thoughts, let's just grab a couple more passages. Let's just let's just do what we were talking about and and enjoy that reading a few things before we go. Um, I have a few things right here in front of me so while you guys are looking i'll read a few and hopefully i won't steal them Please. yeah i hope um, you don't because i've got i've got one too so um right after that bit that i read earlier um there's there's a couple passages in chapter eight the storm clouds over blandings it says uh the butler was standing in uh the butler was standing mountainously beside the tea table staring in a sort of trance at a plateful of anchovy sandwiches and it struck the on galahad honorable even those titles and stuff do and the the abbreviations of them by the way is like (laughs) it does speak to that bedrock notion of that you were talking about heidi uh and it struck galahad not for the first time in the last few days that he appeared to have something on his mind a strained haunted look he seemed to have as if he had done a murder and was afraid somebody was going to find the body a more practiced physiognomist would have been able to interpret that look. It was the one that butlers always wear when they have allowed themselves to be persuaded against their better judgment into becoming accessories before the fact in the theft of their employer's pigs. <laughs> you know that look. So I love how it starts out so general and then in the end becomes totally specific to the one incident in the book that he assumed he pretends that you have experience with. And then a little bit below there, um, it said... Uh, why on earth do you spring like that when anyone speaks to you? I've noticed it before. He leaps, he said, complainingly to his niece Millicent, who now came down the stairs with slow, listless steps. When addressed, he quivers like a harpooned whale. Oh, said Millicent dully. She had dropped into a chair and picked up a book. She looked like something that might have occurred to Ibsen in one of his less frivolous moments. <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the whole book. That's so good. And then on the next page, well, here, I'll let you do one, Sean, and then Heidi, and then we'll come back around if we've got time. Okay, uh, this is this is a longer passage that I alluded to earlier from the beginning of Cocktails Before Dinner. This is Ronnie uh, brooding in the rose garden. Uh, With the lead pipe. <laughs> that's right. Uh, at the moment when the sky suddenly burst asunder and the world became a shower bath, he had been walking along the path that skirted the wall of the kitchen garden. Not uh, the kitchen garden. And the only shelter that offered itself was a gloomy cave or dugout that led to the heating apparatus of the hothouses. Into this he had dived like a homing rabbit, and here, sitting on a heap of bricks, he had remained for the space of 50 minutes with no company but one small green frog and his thoughts. <laughs> the place was a sort of sargasso sea into which had drifted all the flotsam and jetsam of the kitchen garden which it had joined. <laughs> there was a wheelbarrow lacking its wheel and lying drunkenly on its side. There were broken pots in great profusion. There was a heap of withered flowers, a punctured water and can, a rake, 
and lar- with large gaps in its front teeth, some potatoes unfit for human consumption, and half a dead blackbird. The whole <laughs> effect was extraordinarily like hell, and Ronnie's spirits, not high at the start, had sunk lower and lower. <laughs> uh, and then a paragraph or so on, uh, he's musing on his troubles with Millicent. In, in asking Millicent to marry him, he had gone, he now definitely realized, too far. He had overdone it. It was not that he had any objection to Millicent as a wife. He had none whatsoever, provided she were somebody else's wife. What was so unpleasant was the prospect of being married to her himself. <laughs> That's a great line. All right, Hattie, what you got? Um, I'm going to read the passage I just alluded to with Sir Galahad and Sue. Um, this is in chapter 11, More Shocks for Sue. It's in section one, and I'll read about a page. I never heard the Honorable Galahad beaming like one listening to a tale of virtue triumphant, anything so dashed sporting in my life. Sue's heart leaped. She had felt all along that reason, capital R, in denying the possibility that this man could ever approve of what she had done had been mistaken. These pessimists always are. You mean you won't give me away? Me? Said the Honorable Galahad, aghast at the idea. Of course I won't. What do you take me for? I think you're an angel. The Honorable Galahad seemed pleased at the compliment, but it was plain that there was something that worried him. He frowned a little. What I can't make out, he said, is why you want to marry my nephew, Ronald. I love him, bless his heart. No, seriously, persisted the Honorable <laughs> Galahad. Do you know that he once put tin tacks on my chair? And he bounces tennis balls on pigs. All the same, I love him. <laughs> you can't. I do. How can you possibly love a fellow like that? That's just what he always used to say, said Sue softly. <laughs> and I think that's why I love him. The Honorable Gal had sighed. Fifty years' experience had taught him that it was no use arguing with women on this particular point. But he had conceived a warm affection for this girl, and it shocked him to think of her madly throwing herself away. Don't you do anything in a hurry, my dear. Think it over carefully. I've seen enough of you to know that you're a very exceptional girl. I don't believe you like Ronnie. I don't dislike him. I've, he's improved since he was a boy. I'll admit that. But he isn't worthy of you. Why not? Well, he isn't. She laughed. It's funny that you of all people should say that. Lord Emsworth was telling me just now that Ronnie is exactly like what you used to be at his age. <laughs> what? That's what he said. The Honorable Galahad stared incredulously. That boy like me? He spoke with indignation, for his pride had been sorely touched. Ronald like me? Why, I was twice the man he is. How many policemen do you think it used to take to shift me from the Alhambra to Vine Street when I was in my prime? Two, sometimes three, and one walking behind me carrying my hat. Clarence ought to be more careful what he says, dash it. It's just this kind of loose talk that makes trouble. The fact of the matter is, he's gone and got his brain so addled with pigs, he doesn't know what he is saying half the time. He pulled himself together with a strong effort. He became calmer. What do you and that young poop quarrel about? Yes, he's not a poop. He is. It's astonishing to me that any individual can be such a poop. You'd have thought it would have required a large syndicate. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you known him? About nine months. Well, I have known him all his life, and I say he's a poop. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have quarreled with you. However, we won't split straws. Okay, we're going to stop. And now I will say that my car has just appeared in my driveway. So we will soon find out the source of the mystery. Jack White, exciting. where have you been? I went to take Lucy to uh, cruises. He went to take Lucy to the cruises. 
So I was right. Mm. He took her. I didn't. I I was sitting here, and then your car just drove by. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. And he says he used my car because he didn't know if I was going to leave. So I was right. (laughs) Okay. I got a couple more here. Quick ones. Um, Gal has talking to Sue Schoonmaker. I used to know old Johnny Schoonmaker well. A great fellow. Makes the finest mint juleps in America. Have you ever tasted a mint julep? Mint julep beach. Not to my recollection, sir. <laughs> oh, you'd remember it all right if you had? Insidious things. They creep up to you like a baby sister and slide their little hands into yours. And the next thing you know, the judge is telling you to pay the clerk of the court $50. Seen Lord Ebsworth anywhere? Um, and then he does these little lines where he'll it's have... It's true about mint juleps, by the way. Yes, yeah. Um, it is imperative that I get a hold of Pilbeam with all possible speed. Don't want the sun to go down on my wrath. All has ended happily in spite of him, but that's no reason why he shouldn't be massacred. I look on myself as a man with a public duty. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes back to what you were saying earlier too. Like he's always, uh, he is alluding to the notion of people having duties and not keeping them. Right. Um, by the way, right after that thing you read about him being, not having objection to Millicent as, as uh, he wouldn't care if he just didn't want her to be married to him. Yeah. The next line is he groaned in spirit, which I think is absolutely <laughs> a miracle way of putting it. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And then uh, let's see this. Maybe there's, Oh, when you've just been told that the girl you love is definitely betrothed to another, you begin to understand how anarchists must feel when the bomb goes off too soon. <laughs> Lots of good stuff like that. Sean, you got one, <laughs> another little one. Uh, yeah. This is also in cocktails before dinner when uh, Parzo's or when uh Pilbeam's getting tight and he's talking with Beach. And he says, well, talking of old Parslow Beach, I could tell you something about him. Oh, no, no. Talking of old Parslow Beach, you did say your name was Beach? Yes, sir. With a capital, capital B? B. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right, how do you got one? No, I don't. All right. All right. Wait, you don't like this book? No. I've just been right. baking. You you use up <laughs> all the it. stuff you like. I knew it. All right. Well, we, as I said, will discuss the final few chapters and answer your questions next week. So we will post the thread there over on the chat over on Substack. Um, Nice feature that they have there that allows us to have these chats. Imagine that. So uh, we'll do that. We also have the Christian Lavernsider series going on later this month. We're going to have our subscriber episode on Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers. How's the reading going on that? Either you started yet? I have used, I've used my drive time to listen to it. Uh, oh, I'm, that's I'm such a good, good idea. I'm going to yeah. do that. Too. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm going to do that. And uh, yeah, we got lots of great stuff happening here at Close Reads. So just wanted to um, mention all that. Uh, thanks to everyone who has been subscribing. Our subscri- subscriber numbers have gone up a little bit recently. So we're appreciative to all of, all of our new subscribers who are who are joining. Welcome. Welcome joining things. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, lots of great content this year. We are very excited about 2024. Oh, man. Um, and uh, we've got some event things that are going to be being announced soon for the next couple of years. And we're working hard on all kinds of stuff. So be on the lookout for that. All right. Well, uh, for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson. Um, You're David Kern. Yeah, I just I just got. Did, uh, you, did you forget? No, I just got <laughs> just got a message that I was like one of those just bad timing. It was just one of those like work messages where you're like, oh crap, someone just took my car. The um, clouds are clearing in what <laughs> must be called David's mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's for Heidi White and Sean Johnson, who have both uh, occasionally beamed like one listening to a tale of virtue triumphant. I am David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. 